The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome back to the Rebel Podcast. You have in Garage Mahal P8 and Pudi, and you have an intro by P8, which is a rarity. That's because of the episode today. But before we get to that, Pudi, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. How you doing? I just nailed the intro, so I'm doing quite well. <laughs> you just you killed it. I, I thought the tone was a little. No, just like no, yeah, that's right. yeah, Who so are we? Who are we? We're the Rebels. We're on the Fight Laugh Feast Network. I would encourage you to download the app. I would encourage you to check out the other podcasts on the network. There's lots of great ones here on the Canadian side. We have some good ones, and of course, down on the American side. But they're all worth listening to. Uh, you can also find us on Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/ReformRebel. That's who we are. So you have to do that part because I can never remember all the details of the like network and the websites and all that stuff. I'm always like, well, normally back when we were, when we did the reform rebel network stuff and remember I, w- I would always talk about like what we had on each days and all that kind of stuff. And even when we were part of the Berean media network, right, I would talk about that stuff. So it's just funny, but being part of the fight, laugh, feast network has been such a blessing. And honestly, like, you know, whether it's Joe Boot and the guys, at the Ezra Institute or Aaron Rock. We're thankful for the Canadian side, but the American side has been feeding our souls for a long time. I mean, we're longtime cross-politic supporters, and Theology Pugcast is still one of my favorite podcasts to listen to of all time. 80s series on uh, the rise and fall of the Gospel Coalition has been phenomenal. If any of our listeners haven't listened to that, A.D. Robles, Rise and Fall of the Gospel Coalition has just been right on the mark. So lots of great stuff coming out of the network and proud to be a part of it. So today we have a special episode. Special air quotes? (laughs) Yeah, special with air quotes. Part of the reason is because obviously many of our listeners who come to our church and many of our our listeners who don't come to our church kind of know that our church has experienced a lot of growth recently and it's been wonderful and it's been great. We don't need to talk about it too much more. But what Chris and I were just chatting about on the way out here to Garage Mahal. So, you know, this is how much we prepare for our episodes, guys. (laughs) On the drive out here, we were saying, what do you want to talk about? Obviously, Chris and I as uh, leaders in the church have been a lot of our time and our family's times have been spent getting to know new families in the church, having them over for dinner, going over to their house for dinner, being social, all that kind of stuff, being hospitable. It's been wonderful. We've met a lot of great people. But Chris and I were just joking about how we don't really get invited to dinner parties anymore. We get invited to Q&As and sometimes they feed us. Yeah, <laughs> It's usually they feed us so that we're like fed up for the Q and A. Yeah, and then like, and then as uh, we're as we're kind of loosening our belts, <laughs> the chair gets tucked in real tight to the table. They lean in close, and here's what I always hear: "So you guys are post millennial." Absolutely, <laughs> that's the thing, right? True, true story. A few weeks ago, I was at a conference. Yeah, the conference was about evangelists, so it was an evangelist yeah. training conference. Yeah. 
quick plug for the cross current equipping evangelists. Uh, Corey McKenna is our boy and, it, and he does a great job. I'll even plug this even for, I was at the conference, so I can, I can say I have firsthand experience with what he provides. And I've, I've also been out on the streets with Corey, the crosscurrent.com. If you have any inkling of a, being a church that wants to reach the community around them. Yeah. And, you need and even to just leverage. train your people for personal evangelism. We're huh? not even talking about street corner preaching. We're just talking, just train your people. So they're competent in relational evangelism. Absolutely. 80% of what he teaches is personal discipleship yeah. and witness. It's top notch stuff. If you're a church, like a church leader, leverage that ministry. Yeah. One of the beauties of living in the world today is that we actually have access to people who aren't necessarily in our church family. We can get their content. It's all online. Corey's great. He's got a podcast, uh, The Equipping Evangelist, that you can check out on Spotify as well. It's free. So you can listen to him talk there if you want to test um, what we're saying. He's a great guy. He's a friend of the show. He's been on the show before. Yeah, he's been on the show. Um, He's 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 one of our church elders. He's phenomenal in all kinds of ways. Where he's going before all that shameless plugging of, of our friend Corey? I was at the conference. It's an evangelist conference. So what do you expect us to talk about evangelism Evangelism. yeah Yeah. no not at all the moment (laughs) there was a break in every conversation either at our tables we went out for dinner the first question that came was like so as soon as they identified who i was and like what what church church i go to to and and like usually it was in reference to you but they were just like so you guys are post-millennial help me understand this and so like it was just like nobody cares about like talking about what we're actually learning nobody had any like oh we'll figure out what he thinks about that later but we really are curious about this little thing yeah it is funny how that's sort of the the reputation i guess of of our podcast and of the church is that we are very heavily steeped in the post-millennialism and i would just say like it's not like you come and every week there's a post-millennial application point but kind of right like i yeah like i guess the point is and and it's not like every elder on our elders board. We just talked about Corey McKenna, who's not post-millennial, but uh, we're working on him. No, no. But, you know, it's not like every elder is post-millennial, but it is just because of how much I've been involved in sort of online teaching with this stuff, done some stuff with Ezra, done some stuff with other podcasts. This is certainly an area of interest for me. And I would say this is one of the theological distinctives that I'm most comfortable really pushing my viewpoint because I think I'm right and I think it's it's well studied, but it, it does seem to be this is the thing that we're all about. Now, I've talked about this topic a ton on this program, and so I don't necessarily want to rehash the things that I've said. But what's interesting is just the other day, we had a bunch of people over at our house. You and Heather were there, and it happened. So you guys are post-millennial. Yeah. Tell me about that. And I answered the question, and your wife had an interesting comment where she just kind of like smirked at the two of us, and she said, oh, his is different than yours, Chris. And like... <laughs> I just thought that, that, that was funny, like you have how you answer that question, but we are both getting this a lot. So whether you're somebody who comes to Crossroads and have heard that, uh, you know, Nate has an odd eschatological view or uh, whether or not you've just heard us on the podcast a few times, today's episode is called Pudi Teaches About Postmillennialism. And so I'm going to let Pudi do it. But the whole point here is that we get asked all the time, sort of what is this odd eschatological viewpoint? And the first thing I would always say is like, it's not historically an odd eschatological viewpoint. It was actually the dominant view of most of church history, including most of the reformers and most of the Puritans, most of the early church fathers, but it certainly seems to be a rarity these days. So we're at a dinner table, Chris. I've just fed you a hearty meal, probably steak, and then I say, so... You guys are post-millennial. Help me understand that. Yeah, my first line is always, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> just just kidding. I would just touch on the, the history part that you, you said. Oftentimes you're going to hear people be like, no, all millennial was the historical position. And 
the terms actually change. So yeah. what, even though That's like what, what we think of, of all millennialism is different than what Augustine thought of all, all millennialism back in 300, that was more post-millennial than all, all millennial. Yeah. So like B.B. Warfield, so, for example, yeah. like a raging post-millennialist, but called himself an all millennialist because the term post-millennial didn't really get introduced until the 20th century when there became a distinction between the all millennial and post-millennial views. Yeah. I just wanted to get that out, yeah, good out, point. out there because Great I know point. I can even picture the guy's face in my mind. He's like, wait that's wrong. Second. Wait, yeah. wait, wrong. The first thing I always do is I want to explain kind of what I mean by it because we live in a culture where people have an idea of what a term signifies, but they don't actually know what I'm specifically saying. Yeah. Um, so like basically what I mean when I say post-millennial is that I think the kingdom of God that Jesus brought will continue to expand and the victory of the gospel will continue until the entire world's Christianized. And then Christ will come back, which is why we would say we're post-millennial because the millennial kingdom, which I think is not literal, it's it's figurative, it's an not analogy. Not a literal, yeah, uh, literal thousand, thousand years. years. No, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a, just an, an extended period of time. And once the world has been Christianized, after that millennial golden age of Christianity, Christ will return. And I'll get into why I think that. That's what I mean by post-millennial. So what I don't want you to hear, because I think there, there might even be a little bit of just tweaking a difference how we would say it. I don't actually think... When I say fully Christianized, I don't think there will be 100% of people on earth that are saved. Right. Um, I say Christianized to me doesn't mean they're all saved. I think most people will be saved. I think yep. the majority of people at that time will be believers. Yep. But at the end of days, when Christ comes back, I don't think every single person will be saved there. And I would, I would As hearken, in not 100% regenerate. Yeah, what, exactly. Yeah. 100%. Um, there will be still people who secretly are against us, our enemies. They might even think there are Christians just like there is in your churches right now. Yep. And I would use the verses of the wheat and the darnel. You look across the field and it's all wheat, but we know that that's not the case because yeah. when you do the harvest, there's some that isn't. And then there's that idea of the tree with the nest and the birds. Well, the, the birds have nested in the tree from all outward appearances. This tree is one unit, but there is something in there that is not a part of it. Yep. I would liken those to what the last days look like, which ironically is actually what I think those parables are talking about. So, yeah. uh, but let me, <laughs> <Awesome>. let me, <laughs> sorry. So like yeah. the way I explain this is I always, I think you have to go back to the garden okay. to begin the process. Feel free to jump in as much as you want. No, no, here. I want this. This uh, is about, this is so, about how Chris answers the question. I'm the yeah. dispensationalist who's my uh, jaws on the floor. <laughs> uh, so I always go back to the garden and, and I say, okay, so God has created and he's created something that was what? Very, very good. good, right? So at that point, he's created something that he believes is is good. It's very good. He rested. What did God do when he rested? He sat down and he enjoyed his creation. He rested in his creation. Obviously, the fall comes, man is expelled from the garden, but we're given a task. And all of this presupposes that you believe something about the Bible. And I think everybody listening to this podcast, for the most part, will believe what I'm about to say is that God's immutable. God doesn't change, which means fundamentally, before we can start thinking about the history of the world, you have to keep in mind the idea that what God created and what God wanted man to do on the earth hasn't changed. The, the, the dominion mandate, God said to Adam and Eve, take dominion, subdue the earth, go forth, multiply and, and take over. That's still the mandate of humanity. Even after the garden, that's still the mandate, even though now we're infected by sin, we're infected by the curse. And so if you're looking at history, like as a flow chart or a graph, we're pretty good when we come out of the garden. Like we've talked about this, like uh, this is partly why we see a slow decay of how humanity is as, as the sin and curse infects the earth. 
um, I would say that that starts, mankind starts getting worse, but the mandate hasn't changed. What started with two people ends up spreading, and we see the story of creation, the story of redemption getting passed down because God has promised right away a savior who would undo what has been done. Mentally picture the garden, very good, mandate being given, that mandate continuing throughout history, but sin has infected the problem. Amen? Yep, gotcha. Then we get, obviously, we go through all of history. We go through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, I would say, are kind of an overview of global history before we focus in on a specific remnant of people. We see, obviously, the flood, the fall. uh, Well, the fall, the flood, I guess, comes in that order. And then there's the Tower of Babel. And then God specifically creates a people, a remnant for himself. And what's Israel's mandate? Israel's mandate is to go forth, multiply, and take dominion of all of the pagan nations around them. So we're seeing the picture. Right. Be being, a kingdom of priests, show the world what God's like. Exa- yep. Exactly, right? So I'm backing up to explain postmodernism all the way to the beginning because I actually think you have to understand the, whole, the whole narrative to understand why we can all of a sudden jump to the whole world to be Christianized because I think that's been the point the since time. the very beginning, right. because the point of scripture is to get back to a garden state, right? That's the whole point of why we're doing this whole endeavor. You know what I mean? Like God could have sent Jesus day two and redeemed them and been like, okay, we're back. But no, there's a point here. So we go through all of history. And if we're looking at a, a chart that goes all the way down, I would say we get to a point in history where there's the depravity of man is, is rampant. God wipes the earth out and restarts again with Noah. I think mm-hmm. I'm skipping over a whole bunch of history, yeah, yeah. obviously. Noah's given the same mandate. If yep. He reiterates the same command, go forth, multiply, and Noah falls again in the garden, and he falls again, and then we see history continue to the Tower of Babel. I'm sorry, I'm going over this quick because I want to make sure we get to the good stuff. Well, this is all good stuff, but I mean like, and then so we get to the idea of the nations being scattered at Tower of Babel. Babylon, did you say? Yeah, like, it's, the <laughs> it's the same in the text, right? I love, I love it's the same it. in the text, Babylon uh, and Babel. Just like, um, anyway, so we see that, and then we see nations spread out. And I think this is important because I think this is where a lot of the objections for postmillennial theology actually begin, is this idea of nations go forth to all the nations like when we get to the Great Commission. So we see all the nations being scattered. But like, remember, that isn't God's design. That's sin that has caused that. The original plan was for us all to be together, but... Sin is what's caused the division of nations. The division of of nations. The end game is to undo what's happened. What sin has done. Exactly. To undo the curse, reverse the curse. I can flesh that out if if we need to, but like that's the goal. The end, the kind of the end game is to get back. That's what the snake crusher is meant to do. Absolutely. Right. Is end the curse and get it back. So now fast forward throughout history, we see pictures of what the kingdom will look like with like the nation of Israel going into lands and driving out wiping out, eradicating. Expanding the borders of its kingdom under Joshua. Yeah, exactly. And like we see all those times where like God is like purposely doing this, but we see other pictures like the story of Jonah and whatnot just that all allude to what the kingdom is like. So if we're jumping to the New Testament, we see Christ comes, but what's happened in the last 400 years of that time is that God's basically been silent. We haven't heard from a prophet. We haven't heard God speak for a long time. So we're, if in, in one way we can look at the birth of Christ at the, at basically at the, the lowest point in history. If we're looking at that chart again from the garden, sin has infected the world all the way down to when Christ comes like into a world that God has stopped speaking into. Jesus is born. Jesus grows. Fast forward to when his ministry starts. Jesus' ministry starts. And I think every Christian would say that's the changing point in history, if that's fair, right? Yep. So 
up until that point, and I think there's some overlap, but up until that point, I would say that would be the the Jewish age, the age of the of the nation of Israel, the Jewish age, and I would say from when Jesus begins his ministry or his birth or his ascension, whenever you want to like put the detail there, I kind of think of it as his inauguration, um, as when the Holy Spirit comes down. Baptism. Yeah, baptism. I I would say that's the inauguration of the new, of not of the new king, of the revealing of the king, so to speak. If you want to look at Gandalf on the mountain, look to the east every five days. Um, that That idea, like this is when history changes. Look around, look at your calendar right now, look at the days of the week, whatever you want to look at. History changed when Jesus' ministry started, Yeah. depending on whenever you want to put the timepiece. At his birth, what you have is a fundamental change in the world, and that is that God has been incarnated. He's stepped into creation in a fundamental way that he had not been involved before. He took on flesh, became human, and stepped into his own story, right? So... And then obviously you have the, the beginning of his sinless life starts there, but it culminates then at the moment when he goes public, right? So you have the baptism, you have that moment where God is now the son of my love in whom I, I delight, or, or this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And you have God's affirmation of the life of Christ up until that point. And then you have the earthly ministry begin. The four most important events in history are the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. You know, I mean, those four things are the, yep. like, whichever one you want to put as paramount, like his life, that 33 years that he was here is the most important period of time in the history of the world. Correct. So God enters the story. And then we have to fast forward. And this is where I think to disagree with post-millennial theology, I think you have to wrestle with verses because there's there's verses that are very, I think, overtly post-millennial. Again, I think the burden comes on to the other viewpoints to explain away what I think is clear yeah. clear in the text. So, Why does the knowledge of God's glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea not mean what it seems to plainly say? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you guys want chapter verse four where I'm getting a lot of the bulk of post-millennial Old Testament, like the book of Psalms is the most post-millennial book of all time, yeah. I think. But specifically Psalm 72 is a huge one. Isaiah 2 is a big one. Yeah. If you're talking about like breaking down the industries, I don't want to go too much into it, but I actually think we're in the new heavens and the earth now. Agreed. Um, and so, and that's, I think it's Isaiah 55 talks about the idea 65, of like yeah. 65, 65, the idea of like the lion laying in with the lamb, yep. but there's still, still death, death. still yep. death. So I think the life of Christ is when the curse starts being reversed. Yeah. Christ comes, the curse is broken. At what point does the curse break? I would say, obviously, on death, the, burial, the, resurrection. Exactly. When Christ defeats death, yeah. the effects of the curse are gone. So Christ comes, but you have to wrestle with what Christ says about his coming. We have a tendency to think of the gospel as just the work of salvation for man. And the gospel is the work of salvation for the whole world. That's John 3.16. 3.17 comes after that, though, right? Yeah. Um, and it's the idea of that like Christ came to reverse the curse. And the curse didn't just infect man and infect the entire planet. It infected everything. Mm-hmm. So when Christ comes to reverse the curse, that's part of the gospel, which the other part of that gospel is the kingdom, is the part that Christ came to bring the kingdom. So you have to wrestle with the parables of the mustard seed kingdom, starts small, grows into a, a tree that covers the whole earth, yep. um, which I mentioned earlier, like the final picture of that tree, though, is a tree that looks very full, but there still is the birds in the nests. You get a tree that's grown in full, and then we get, obviously, um, leaven the leaven that works its way flow. through the bread. Exactly. All the different parables of of the, the kingdom. The wheat field with some darnel. With, yeah. Exactly. So the wheat field with the darnel. Um, you get all these parables that you have to wrestle with. What does that mean? If, if Jesus himself is saying he's brought the kingdom... It doesn't sound like it's a spiritual kingdom because that's the first objection, right? Like, well, it's a spiritual kingdom. Well, no, 
Jesus very much said it's like the kingdom is here. I'm with you. The kingdom is here. So Jesus goes through his ministry. He teaches this all the way up until his death. And then he ascends. And where does he go to sit down at the end? At the end? Right hand of the Father. Right, right hand of the Father. Keep that in the back of mind. I'm going to back up a little bit. This is the most talking I've ever done. <laughs> on the podcast? On the podcast without you interjecting at all, <laughs> um, which is very weird for me. Except for the episodes, we're just not on him. But Jesus says he's bringing the kingdom. And so I think we need to, right. before you can get to the idea of like... And that's Matthew 12, by the way. Jesus yeah. says, if it's by the power of God that I cast out demons, then you know the kingdom has come upon you. And that's exactly the section that I want to talk about. Because go back to the Tower of Babel. The nations are deceived. They're sent out to be other nations. God focuses in on, on the nation of Israel. Yep. We get to the cross. Jesus brings the kingdom. But before we get there, we see Satan comes and tempts Jesus with what? Right. What's the second temptation? Ask me and I'll give you the all nations, of the kingdoms, yeah. which implies that they're his kingdoms to give, right? Right. But Jesus says, no, I'm going to get them my own way. So then we get the parable of the strong man, which if you go back through the Old Testament, you'll see... I don't want to get too much into the cosmetology or whatever, but particularly in Judges, you see all the nations are usually led by demons or, their, or the nation worships a demon. False gods. Um, false gods, whatnot. Well, all of a sudden we get to the strong man. Jesus uses the parable. Before I can take back my kingdoms, I have to first bind the strong man, which brings up the second objection I think people have about strong, is like, what about Satan? And it's like, well, what's he bound up to? He's bound up to deceiving the nations. He's plundering right. the kingdom. So, so um, if he says in Matthew chapter 12, First, I have to bind up the strong man. And then you fast forward and you have a picture of an angel who's described exactly like Jesus is described in Revelation chapter one, right? Same look. Also, who has the keys, right? Which Jesus is depicted as holding the keys in, Gen in Revelation one. So that angel, that's I think Christ, goes down and binds up Satan. How? He binds him in his ability to deceive the nations, right? He, exactly. he breaks his jurisdictional authority to keep the minds of unbelievers blinded. I think that's key because we get to the, the Great Commission, which a lot of my eschatological view is tied to the idea of just one simple thing. Was Jesus wrong when he said we were going to win? Like, right. And so like, if we fast forward to or the... Did he, or did he give the Great Commission in order for it to be fulfilled? Yeah. Right? Like, did he mean for us to fulfill the Great Commission? Exactly. I think a plain reading of, of scripture actually would say that I'm trying to avoid as much of the preterism of it as I can, just because I think we've done enough on that. Yep. So Jesus has come. He's bound up the strong man. He's brought the kingdom. He's defeated sin. He's broke now the curse, the curse that led to death. But the curse is still just like, you know, you start taking medicine, you don't instantly heal, right? You know, there, there's a progressive healing of the world. The same idea. Jesus breaks the curse of sin at the cross or at the resurrection, however you want to term that. The curse of sins is gone, but the curse is still in effect. Look outside. The world is still, yeah, still as, bad as, as, bad as, as bad as possible. And then, you know, there's the overlap of, of the Jewish age till the Christian age because the church age gets ushered in. I would say probably the ascension is when the church age begins. The Holy Spirit comes. Pentecost. Pentecost, I think, is a very much a reversal of the Tower of Babel. Yep. I Rather agree. than everybody being spread, everybody's congregated on Jerusalem. Yeah. And instead of their languages scattered, their languages become one. Yeah. Exactly. Right. So like God is an, the author of a whole story. So we should pick up those, those things. And then what's changed then? Well, now there's a, a kingdom that's being expanded out through the ministry of those men who have watched the Savior ascend. And there's a huge change in history from that point on. 
where are you right now listening to this podcast? You're a Christian, not likely not a Jewish person listening to this podcast. 99% of you are in North America, Canada, which for the most part, nobody even knew existed at that time. And you're probably either listening alone or listening with some friends who are also Gentile people as well. I just point that out to say like the proof of the pudding for post-millennial is the fact that you're listening to this podcast right now because the kingdom is expanding. You can look outside and see that the kingdom is expanded because there was 11 men left over when Jesus ascended. Then they, he revealed himself to, you know, up to 500 after the the ascension. And now there's what is a billion Christians since, since then have lived in the 2000 years. Who knows? But the gospel is expanding. So you can't argue with the idea that the gospel has expanded, but I want to stick to back to scripture for a second. So Jesus ascends, he gives the great commission. What's the great commission? Everybody focuses on the go therefore, but before that is all authority authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Does that sound like somebody who doesn't have authority over the nations, this world, this, and it's like, no, it sounds very much like somebody who's been given authority. And then the go comes, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey, yada, yada, yada. And so we see Jesus is given the church marching orders um, with no indication anywhere in the text that we're going to fail in that marching orders. So then fast forward to 1 Corinthians 15, where it talks about what it's going to look like before Jesus comes back. I think this is the checkmate, so to speak, for yep. postmillennialism is the idea that then the kingdom will be offered up to Jesus and then he'll return to defeat the last enemy that is death, right. which implies the idea that the church has completed the work except for defeating the last enemy, which is... Which he does personally. Exactly, which is death. The one thing we can't overcome. Everything else he's left to his people, which is why, if you think about it, like, which is why it makes sense that he didn't just take us to heaven after we're saved. In fact, Jesus says in John, like, I pray that you don't take them out of the world, that you protect them from the evil one when they're in the world. world, And so like, okay, well, that makes sense. He's So protect us from the evil one while we're here. Well, why? Because we have a job to do, right? And that job is to expand the kingdom. Yeah. I often say that that where Jesus says, uh, I do not pray that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. I always say for those Christians who are praying for a rapture, you're actively praying against the prayers of Jesus, right? You're praying, Jesus, take me out of this world. And he's praying, I do not pray that you would take them out of this world, which I think is interesting. Yeah. So basically, do you think Jesus's marching orders will be fulfilled? Right. Or do you think he'll fail again? And so the question really becomes, do you think that the power of the cross for your salvation, for the redemption of mankind was enough of a rescue? Or do you think Christ has to rescue us again? Because what you're saying, if you don't think postmillennial theology is correct, is that you're actually saying that God needs to rescue us a second time. And I don't think anywhere in scripture teaches a double rescue. Right. It teaches once, once for, all. for all, you've been you've yeah, been rescued. Now, good. the objection to that would then simply be that's a spiritual rescue, not a like a legitimate like physical. physical rescue. And I'm like, yes, all the disciples were rescued and then murdered. Absolutely. Nothing in postmillennial says that my life's going to be great. Right. It's not prosperity gospel. Well, and the way of the kingdom advancement is by the blood of the martyrs, which is the seed of the church, right? It's by death, burial, and resurrection. We, we conquer the way Christ conquered. Exactly. But for every martyr, 10 more become, That's become. Right. we see that we yeah. see this everywhere in the world. Our church is a great example of this. The world told us to close our doors and we need to find a new building because we can't fit everybody in because... Right. God works through the martyrs. You know, he works through those those who, events who and yeah, exactly. Yeah, who, to expand yeah. his kingdom. But that doesn't mean every single person in there 
is going to go through the same thing as Peter. It's not like right. it's a global advancement. I would say so like we are going to see the church continue to spread. And I, I would say if you look from the upper room two days after the after the death to now, you can see what we're talking about. The objection again becomes, well, look outside. The world's terrible right now, Nate. Yes. Amen. None of us are saying that it's going to be awesome tomorrow. You mentioned Habakkuk, the glories of the water will cover the whole earth. Well, before that even happens in Habakkuk, there's the idea where God was basically chastising Habakkuk for questioning what he's doing in, in the world. He's like, if you could see what I was yeah. going to give you, you wouldn't even you, believe it. You wouldn't even believe it. It's yeah. going to be better than anything you could possibly imagine. And that, and, and that he, to me, and he even says right there, right before he says that, he says, you know, write this vision down. Think about this vision. Keep this vision right at the forefront of your minds. If it seems slow, it's not, it will come. And that is the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Like don't get impatient. It's coming. A lot of the reasons people have rejected this theology of, of the kingdom, because that's actually what I think it is. It's not like post-millennial. That, those are all just terms about when this is happening. Right. The, the theology of the kingdom is here and spreading is simply rejected because people can't look outside and see it. I mean, they look outside and it looks like very, very clearly the Satan's kingdom is winning. Was it last week or a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, you mentioned the idea of like, well, we are in a war and the enemy fights the hardest when we're winning when they're backed into a corner. So like, yeah, I don't expect them to give up the land that they have as we progress. And so. I think actually last week uh, you used it in relation to the uh, Roe v. Wade overturning, but like what Christ accomplished in his first coming at the cross and garden tomb was the D-Day, right? That established the beachhead, yeah. right? That's the kingdom beachhead. Absolutely. And now, you know, the kingdom has to expand through enemy territory and take back ground that had been lost. Yeah. To use that analogy for th- for this, D-Day would have been, to me, would have been the resurrection. That's right. Game on, basically, yeah. at, the, at that point. I think a lot of the objections to this are tied to preterism, basically. Um, and we maybe should do, just do an episode so that people know what we're talking about when we say preterism, partial, preterism, not, yeah. not full. Um, is the idea, like, a lot of the, the crux of the arguments for a futuristic approach to the book of Revelation, I think, are cleared up, actually, in Matthew. So, Matthew 24. Yeah. Interestingly enough... Was it Hitchens? One of the famous atheists. Bertrand Russell. Was it Bertrand? Was yeah. it basically said if, if Jesus is a false teacher? Yeah, yeah. That's like, Bertrand Russell. Um, if Be, yeah. these things because happen. Because he said he was going to come back uh, within the lifetime of that generation. Yeah. Exactly. And so like, I think if you read Matthew 24 with the idea and then Revelation 1, basically, if you the idea of like, there's a sense of urgency and immediacy to Christ's coming back that to me can't put that into... 1500 years or 2000 years, I guess longer 1500, um, 2000 years in the future or whenever dipsies will think Christ is coming back. You have to wrestle with the idea. Well, like Jesus said it was immediate. So what does he mean? Well, I would say he meant it immediately and his wrath is coming back. And I think that was fulfilled in 70 AD. So that's basically how I would explain like post-millennial. Like I think there's obviously lots more for preterism um, that we get, but basically just... That's what you mean by post-millennialism. Yeah. People ask the question. Exactly. The overall story of the narrative of scripture is the redemptive history of mankind to get us back to a garden state. The heavy lifting was done by Christ, but the battles that need to be wrapped up are left to the church. And it's a progressive victory. You know what I mean? It's not like it's bad tomorrow. It's great. It's a chart graph where there's going to be peaks and valleys, but the overall trend is trending towards back to a garden state. So I think when Christ returns to defeat the last enemy, that's death, which is first Corinthians 15, the world has to look like a world that's been subdued to the point right. that there is one Dominion enemy. has been taken. Exactly. Right? right. 
interesting of that is the mandate of scripture. All the terminology is to take dominion, to take over. Yeah. There is no indication of failure and, anywhere in the New Testament. And I would just say even the Old Testament type, right? So a type is a sort of like a prophecy is a is a verbal prediction, right? Verbal prophecy. A type is a sort of picture prophecy. And so one of the types in the Old Testament is the taking of Canaan, right? The taking of the promised land, which God says actually over and over again happens slowly, right? I'm not going to give it to you. This Deuteronomy 6, I think, um, right? I'm not going to give it to you all at once. I'm going to give it to you slowly. I'm going to drive out your enemies slowly. You're going to fulfill this slowly. What's interesting is that Psalm 37 comes around. It talks about how the righteous are uprooted from the land and it's the righteous who inherit the land. Right, And then Christ comes along and he actually takes that verse from Psalm 37 and he expands it. So Canaan was the training ground for Israel. Now that I'm getting all the nations back, it's the meek that will inherit, not the land, the earth. The meek inherit the earth. And so postmillennialism is, is the belief that Jesus meant what he said when he said the meek inherit the earth. Not the Antichrist, not the unrighteous, the meek inherit the earth. I think you're bang on going back to the promised land taking because that's that's, I think... One of the most direct correlations yeah. to what we're talking about. And interesting enough, like, so two things happened there. One, Jesus was like, completely eradicate everybody, which everybody gets all up and I was like, oh, God's a murderer. Um, it's like, no, he, enemy of God, completely defeated. Yeah. Always remember and, that. And the, remember that that did not include Rahab or her family. No. Why? Because they joined Israel. Exactly. They right. became one of them. That's right. Conversion um, defeated Rahab not the sword. Exactly, right? The picture that we see is that the Jesus figure in that story, Joshua, remember, imperfect, imperfect pictures, but like, we're not Joshua, we're the Israelites, is to take back the promised land. And God actually chastises them and punishes them when they fail, when they make covenants and make pacts with them and don't do what they were told. And then there's the other thing is like you had mentioned earlier, so like, this is going to be a slow, progressive thing. Why though? Why was it slow? Well, because if I let you do it all at once, the animals will grow up too much and destroy you. And it's like, so God's sovereignty of like, we understand this has to be slow because our enemies will destroy us. Something Doug Wilson said a couple times in history, Christianity has had the chance to take over the globe. And nobody is ready to take the baton. And and then we weren't ready. And why? And why weren't we ready? Because our enemies would have found a way to destroy us before we were ready. So the church needs to be ready now for the next time. Which is why both cultural engagement and, I guess, church reform have to go hand in hand. The church must be reformed. The bride has to be sanctified alongside, right, the engagement of culture and the evangelization of the nations. So Judgment always begins in the house of the Lord, which means reformation begins in the house of the Lord, which means us conquering the kingdoms happens in the house of the Lord. And I think, I think you can very much go back to the Reformation and say, that's a perfect example of this actually happening again throughout history, regaining what was lost over time right. through faith alone, through Christ alone, through sola scriptura. But the idea of like the Reformation, so we need to be doing that in the churches. So like part of the post-millennial theology is, yeah, I, I actually think at some point there will be one church again. Right. The Catholic church won't be the Catholic church anymore. You know what I mean? Right. The Pope will be torn down. And no one will baptize babies. No one will nah, baptize babies. Hey, uh, but um, like, it, but individual, <laughs> individual theological differences will probably still be a thing, but like denominational ones, yeah. I don't think will be. Yeah. Um, oh no, yeah. Totally local so, church autonomy. Is, exactly. Yeah. So like when people ask me the question, it's like, well, so when is this take? I'm like, I think we're very early days of the church. Yeah. I think we got at least 10,000 years to go. Yeah, exactly. And I would say, like, it makes sense to get back to the garden. It was, what, 6,000 years from then till now or 6,500? 
at least that to get back to a place where I could say the curse has been reversed enough that it would look like a Christianized globe, which is also why I think we see periods of time where other continents are the kind of the focal point of, of the Christian faith. Like right now, I would say North America is very much not the focus of mm-hmm. where the gospel is thriving. Yeah. But like China, China Southern Africa, South, South Africa, America. like it seems like the gospel's going off yeah. down there. Whereas before it was very much Europe. It was very much Eastern Europe. Australia had a little bit of time. So I think time in the sun. Yeah, some time. I think the point of that is that we will see a globalized nation without one place being able to say it was us. Yeah. And it was like, no, it was the gospel working all the way through. I don't know if that was. No, that that was good. And basically, so I'll leave it with this because I think what you're saying is just the natural outworking of the gospel, right? The natural outworking of that leads to a post-millennial perspective. I totally agree. So Psalm 22, one of our favorite psalms in Christendom, because it prophesies the crucifixion, right? It starts off, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what Christ said on the cross. He's basically telling everyone where to turn in their scrolls. My hands have been pierced, yeah, you know, my, all that stuff. And where does it go from there? So Psalm 22 is all about the crucifixion. And then what happens? Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. What's the result of the crucifixion? That all the families of the earth, all the families of the earth turn and worship the Lord. And then even gospel-saturated passages like in Romans 5, where it's saying, like, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and through death sin, it goes on to say, therefore, righteousness comes in through one man. But listen to this. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died, all right? The free gift is not like the trespass. So he's saying it is like the trespass in that through the one man's trespass, death came in, and through the one man's act of righteousness, life came in. But he says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. Okay, Paul, how is it not like the trespass? Here's how. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. He's multiplying words there for you, so you get it here. If many died, he says, then many more will be made alive through the free gift of grace. In other words, what he's saying is, if your eschatological view has more people attached to Adam by the end of it than attached to Christ, you're wrong. (laughs) The point here is that many, many more. Now, we are not universalists. Many people die not having bowed the knee to Christ. But at the end of the day, it will be true what it says in 1 John 4.14 that he's the savior of the whole world. 1 John 2.2, he's not just the propitiation of our sins, but the sins of the whole world. It will be one day that the whole world will be Christianized. The whole world will bow the knee to King Jesus. And at the end of history, many more people will be attached to the one man through whom we get righteousness than the one man through whom we got trespasses. Right? Awesome. All right, that's Chris uh, explaining post-millennialism. And if you want him to join your small group gathering, uh, uh, you can reach out to reservations at (laughs) Rebel. (laughs) All right, see you guys next week. See you.